graphics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, aka Steven Snyder, the longest curator of the blog, and author of the recently released A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W.blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is thefarmpodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. Okay. Today's guest is no stranger to regular listeners of The Farm. He is a frequent guest here, as well as being my research partner and the author of a forthcoming work on the World Anti-Communist League that will, bro- that will blow all other works on it out of the water. Folks, I give you guys the great Keith Allen Dennis. Keith, thank you so much for dropping by again today, sir. Thank you, Recluse. Thanks very much. This is going to be fun. Oh, yeah. All right. Besides being a brilliant researcher and internet personality, Keith is also a musician, and today we are going to be talking about his latest work, an EP called Liminal. Quite an apt title, as you guys shall see as well. So yeah, kids, it is a music show. Hopefully we'll tune you on to something that will bring more joy and beauty into your lives. And in these dark times, we could all use a little more of these things. And don't worry, we are also going to get pretty weird and mystical throughout the course of this interview as well. So it is also one of those kinds of farm shows. All right, man. To start out with, how did you get into playing music in the first place? And what are some of the artists artists who influenced your style and approach? Wow. This is cool that we're going to do a thing about you know, the music, I don't, I'm really, I don't know if I've ever like done an interview about my songs and stuff before. So this will be like a, maybe a nice palate cleanser for some of the listeners out there that have heard quite enough of me talking about the world anti-communist league and weird cults and secret societies. And, but maybe we'll get to that, uh, in this podcast. Cause those are like my favorite, <clears throat> some of my favorite subjects, but to, to, to answer your question, um, I guess I got to, you know, I would say Neil Young, Neil Young would be kind of the starting point. Like I literally learned guitar chords from Neil Young songbooks. And uh, I had a friend named David that uh, when I was when I was a kid, my two good friends, David and Robert, that, uh, you know, we kind of messed around doing music and stuff and um, never, you know, never really got all that serious but i started playing acoustic guitar and my friend david got me into uh into neil young and i just really fell in love and uh he had these songbooks and i learned the chord diagrams and the fingering you know off of these these neil young you know sheet music so it's at the top of my list there would have to be neil young and pink floyd as like two foundational influences. I used to listen to Pink Floyd like all the time. The best Pink Floyd is uh, that period between when Sid Barrett left and before Dark, Dark Side, Side of the Moon. Yeah. Before yeah. Dark Side. Of, yeah. That period in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that period, 60s. Though I am a big fan of Piper, the Gates of Dawn, but yeah, I mean, freaking absolutely. Yuma, but it's um, like a different band. It's like yeah. a different band. Saucer <laughs> full of secrets, man. Oh gosh, Absolutely. a metal. I mean, those things are just amazing. 
I, I think the best Pink Floyd album in my in my opinion is the soundtrack to the film More. Uh, there's oh, a, a movie yes. called More that was about yes. like heroin junkies or something, and that whole that actually that whole A side to that I mean might be the best thing that they recorded. I know some people will hate me for saying that, but I mean that A side to More is just freaking amazing well well, i love you i love you for it because that's that's to me it's like that's the least one of the least known and like the best pete floyd like to me you've got hand percussion you got the good psychedelic you know sound and it's not like you've even got a reference to dr strange absolutely always changing sides uh yeah so that that's a big influence and uh on my second and third records you can really hear the pink floyd influence and i'm to me it's like if i have an influence i'm not trying to hide it like yeah like my harmonica style is just completely lifted from neil young like i think his harmonica playing is great if bob dylan could if bob dylan who played harmonica like a four-year-old uh, a lot of times in his early days, if he could have been as good on harmonica as Neil Young, the gods would have really struck him down. Like, all right, that's too much. But anyway, um, then the other one was like, of course, The Doors, Jim Morrison. I really, I watched Oliver Stone's movie about The Doors, and I got, I turned into one of those kids that was like way too into Jim Morrison. It was kind of obnoxious, but oh well. But then also, uh, punk rock music, man. There was a show on KPFT Pacifica Radio, which was kind of oddly named because it was in Houston. It was like the only Pacifica station that wasn't on the West Coast was in Houston. And it was, uh, it was just, it, it's, I'm sure it's still around, but it was a great radio station. And uh, actually, the Louis Beams KKK bombed it in like the late 70s. Now, here we go with the Nazi shit again. But I mean, I heard about this and people were like the CIA bombed us, but actually it was KKK that did it because they had some, you know, anarchist uh, content on there that, you know, they were very, uh, they had like uh, gay and lesbian, like, you know, dance music radio programs that were on there. It was very uh, progressive, very, very lefty and the KKK, no likey. But anyway, there was a show called Funhouse that come on every Friday night. And I got exposed to so much cool music from that show. And they had these two hosts, uh, Chuck Roast and Austin Caustic. And they would play like noise and punk rock and like butthole surfers. And they had a really thriving local music scene at the time that they played a lot of stuff off that like heard Nirvana for the first time on there before they were cool, you know? And so, uh, I, I learned about some bands that I've listened to, you know, to this day off of that. So that's one radio show. And there was another radio show that was out of Springfield, Missouri, where I lived for a while, um, called the world beat broadcast. And, uh, that was like the fun house of my, my early twenties. Uh, and this guy, the DJ, would play all kinds of uh, music from all over the world, like folk music and like Indian ragas and Moroccan music and Central African music and uh, reggae, like Old Testament 
reggae, you know what I'm talking about, where they people just reading out of Proverbs over yeah, like a like, dub. Like Mighty Rivers of Babylon, that type of thing. Oh, yeah. It's like that that Old Testament reggae is the best, man. Um, and uh, so I really got – it was really influential on me. And like uh, the master musicians of Jujuka – I don't know if you heard of them, but it was like uh, Brian Geisen and William Burroughs and everybody was all going to Tangier all the time or whatever in like the 60s and 70s and Paul Bowles. Yeah, it was a great place to find um, minor boys, um, you know, and uh, not have to deal with legal repercussions for those appetites. Yeah, my recluse. All right. Yeah. So there's one. (laughs) And Hash, you know, and uh, and weird what they call the 4000 year old rock and roll music. but they had these like banjos, like these bass uh, banjos that these these guys would play. I think it's called a gimbri. And uh, this real kind of simple, primitive uh, style that they would play. I don't know if you ever look up Moroccan folk music, you know what I'm talking about. But that was influential. Anyway, the World Be Broadcast really broadened my horizons. And there's another one um, that... Uh, I listened to in my early twenties, it would come on every Saturday night and play from like midnight till five in the morning. It was a five hour show called blues before sunrise. And it was like a syndicated show out of Chicago. And this DJ played just the deepest cuts of old, old time blues, which I really love. I still love that kind of music to this day, like sleepy John Estes and, Lightning Hopkins and Lead Belly and uh, Blind Boy Fuller and Big Bill Brunzi. He play all that like old like pre-electric country blues and classic blues, you know, with the piano like Bessie Smith and stuff, hep harmony and and get into the electric a little bit and get into a little bit of jazz here and there, a little bit of ragtime here and there, but just really good old old music. Um, so those were like some foundational, you know, kind of influences. And as you can, you know, here it's like it's all over the place. But then I guess I'd add one more is like Ali Farkaturi, the um, I think he's from Mali. He did an album with uh, Ry Cooter called uh, Talking Timbuktu, and the bass on it and some of the guitar stuff kind of goes back to that. You know, it's kind of similar to the Gimbri. Um, and I just I love that kind of stuff. And you can kind of hear it in in my music a little bit. It's a little buried. I'm not really trying to ape any of it, but the influence is there. I'll just put it that way. Uh, did you ever hear Agitation Free? No, I haven't. But I'll have a recording with that name being dropped. Somebody <laughs> was telling me yesterday I should listen to Atmosphere. Oh, and Agitation Free was like a kraut rock band um, from the early 70s, I think. But they actually sound a lot like Pink Floyd from the late 60s, early 70s. But they've also got kind of like that Moroccan mm-hmm. percussion influence in it. And I definitely think you would dig them. I'll have to check that out. But I, I should also say that when I was a kid, when I was like in fourth grade, there was an AM radio station in Houston called KYOK. And it was AM and it was this new kind of music called rap. That wasn't cool enough to be on FM radio yet. And I could barely get it in like South Houston. It was, it always come in fuzzy, but, uh, 
I've been listening to rap my whole life. I love rap uh, music and hip hop. So I, I, you know, it's like, if you listen to my albums, which I hope people will check them out because what the hell, but uh, you would probably never figure that the guy that wrote all that stuff listens to like punk rock and rap music all the time, like, like clutch and the Melvins, <laughs> the exploited and the dead Kennedys and Wu Tang and the coup is like, I'm really on them right now. The coup is great. And like outcast and shit. I listen to all that kind of stuff. And then you hear me, do this like weird animist folk stuff. And it's like, it's all over the place, man. So yeah, a lot of influences. Uh, okay. So out of curiosity, uh, you played all the instruments on uh, the albums, right? I played some of them. Okay. But my, my producer and it's almost like a soulmate, man. This guy is like really gets me and he's just one of my best friends and his name's Stuart. And, uh, he is, uh, he's like the Edward Kelly to my John D or vice versa. I don't know. <laughs> uh, definitely helped me manifest these songs over the last 11 years, really believes in him. And so he's an extremely talented multi-instrumentalist. So you just mainly produce mainly. Sorry, I don't mean to keep her. Did you no, no. do you just like mainly do the guitar though, or uh, do you do other instruments? Guitar, percussion, um, harmonicas, a little other things here and there, and of course vocals and lyrics and stuff. But yeah, he's doing a lot of the heavy lifting on a lot okay. of those stuff. I did play washboard on a couple <laughs> of my first two records, which is cool. You know, it's like part oh, of that great. weird old string band uh, country influence. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. But yeah, he's he's doing a lot of the heavy lifting on that stuff, man. Like it wouldn't it wouldn't exist without without the guy. So I'm grateful for it. Thank you, Stuart. If I didn't tell you today, it changed my life. No, you call no, you call your style mystic blues. What's up with that? <sighs> okay, I don't know if this is technically right, but this is my working model on on this, okay? the difference between like magic and mysticism is like magic. <clears throat> you're setting out to, you know, cause change in accordance with will or whatever. Right. And so it's like this willful on purpose kind of thing. Mystic is in, in my book is like when it just kind of happens to you. Like I didn't ask for this paranormal experience or this vision or whatever to happen it just kind of happened to me right and so there's a a lot of my music and the the lyrics and the inspiration uh and stuff really comes out of a, a lot of uh like lucid dreams and and, and visions and things that I've, i'd had in my younger days they really informed a lot of it and also there is this big, you can especially hear it on my first record, this big uh, old time blues influence. But then the lyrics are talking about like the moon and, you know, tarot cards and, you know, borrowing lyrics from Mother Goose and William Blake and stuff. And it's like, you know, so kind of like this mystical quality to some of the words. But some of the music has a little bit of an old timey kind of vibe to it especially some of the early stuff and some of the stuff i'm going to do later so 
so, I mean, that's the short answer on it. Well, I'm sure I'll get into it more in, in more depth as we go on. But yeah, that's that that's that's the general idea. There's there's like a a lot of stellar celestial interplanetary references and themes that run through the music. And it's also bluesy because, you know, it hurts like hell. Just like <laughs> so so there so that's so it's those things put together, I guess. All right, so Liminal is the third album you released. Uh, your prior two were Year of the Cup in 2009 and Mystic Blues in 2015. Um, as you pointed out to me, they come out uh, every six years or so. Um, so you've got your 666 there. <laughs> <laughs> so we can just keep people uh, wondering who are listening to this. Um, okay, so let's go over those two albums. Let's start with Year of the Cup since it was the first. Yeah, and I should first say that um, you should tell them where to find this stuff, and you should put it in the show notes if you can. You know, like uh, it's it's keithallendennis.bandcamp.com, and uh, my second two records are on there. But Year of the Cup, uh, Bandcamp can't accept it. It was got to figure out some other way. But you can send me a message on Bandcamp, and I can get the MP3s or CDs, which I very much recommend for the hieroglyphic aspects of it. But, um, so, uh, year of the cup, the, the cup there is, is named for the, the water suit of tarot, which I used to be stupidly into like, like just, I, I was, I was very much a tarot head for a, a good few years and there's like good and bad aspects to that. But, um, I had this, uh, sort of idea. I was like, you know, back in Texas, I had, I had like a really rough, like decade, you know, where, uh, made some very poor relationship choices and kind of became myself became like the common element in a, a little series of relationships in which I was getting treated like shit <laughs> like the whole time like hmm, it's another one in here you're, you're being treated like shit again it's like what what's the common element it's you you know and so i kind of had really made a mess out of my life and and i had uh and children and uh didn't see any of them around me they were off with with their moms you know in other places and it was just really uh pretty pretty down and out and uh and I was back in Texas from, from Arizona and getting ready to come back to Arizona and, uh, basically get my kids back, you know, just like get them, get custody of them. Basically I'll try to like not get too, too personal with this stuff, but yeah, that was kind of the, the idea. And, and I had picked up this tarot habit when I moved to Missouri to Arizona, you know, I lived in Springfield. It's like, it's like, you know, now I know it's like, man, that was, that's like Christian identity, Timothy McVeigh country. One of those big Christian identity conferences that happened after Oklahoma city was in Branson, which was like 45 minutes from me, you know? And I used to go down to the Buffalo river in Arkansas and, uh, and go camping down there and backpacking and stuff. It's getting off the subject, but I lived in that area and I had no idea what I know now about like, 
you just just hop, skip, and a jump to Elohim City over there in Springfield. But anyway, uh, when I they called it the buckle of the Bible Belt, which I'm sure other places have have given themselves a similar title, but that's what I heard. And you know, they there was something to it. I mean, the World Assemblies of God headquarters is there. They had like several uh, seminary schools there and Bible colleges in Springfield and State University, MSU. It's called now where I went. Um, anyway, the point is, uh, when I moved from there to, uh, to, to Tucson, like you, you could, I mean, it literally like the golden Dawn book, you know, that real thick book with all the golden Dawn rituals and dogma and all that shit. You just like find it on a public library bookshelf. And it just, it, it was mind blowing. I'd always wanted to get into some of that stuff. And uh, it, it wasn't easy to find uh, where I had lived before. And a lot of that stuff is all available on the Internet now. Of course, but you I moved to the heart of uh, Christian identity territory and it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it moved to like, you know, where this kind of Californicated, you know, Sedona vibe really just kind of permeates out through everything. So there's a lot of cosmic debris in Arizona from like from California. Right. So all kinds of new age books and occult stuff. And, you know, you, you wouldn't, I mean, maybe now it's different, but back in like the, you know, nineties, uh, you wouldn't find people just like reading tarot cards in a place like Missouri. Maybe I'm wrong and just didn't run in the right circles or whatever. But anyway, the point is I had, um, moved to Arizona and, and I started reading cards is the point. And cause there was, they were around and the material, like the books and things. And, and I just got like really, really into it. And, uh, the cards were, you know, like, I think, um, whatever else you want to say about the golden Dawn that like they, their synthesis, their, their recreation of the tarot was like the best thing that they ever did. You know, they mapped it to, the hermetic alphabet, you know, the kind of the cultural appropriation of the Hebrew that the Kabbalists had done. The 16 figures of geomancy mapped to the court cards, the 36 10 degree decans in the Chaldean order of planets mapped to the small card, the pip cards, whatever, you know, the 22 trumps uh, mapped to the, the alphabet and, you know, different, uh, planets and elements and Zodiac signs. Um, so that, that, you know, if you look at like the Thoth deck or, um, I, I had, uh, Lon Milo Duquette's tarot of ceremonial magic, which was based off the Thoth deck, of course. And, and of course, both of them were based off what the golden Dawn had put out in book T, right. Which some of your listeners probably know, what I'm talking about, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's just like here's here's where I'm just gonna be like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a freaking weirdo from way back. But anyway, book T and the Golden Dawn uh, tarot system. You've got um, planets and signs and elements and uh, the zodiac and all this stuff that's like right under the surface, and this is where they derive the names of the cards from that you see on the Thoth deck. So for example, 
the 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 two of discs is a change you know and it's supposed to be the influence of uh jupiter in the sign of capricorn and it's like that's this is a beneficial thing you know the expansive you know regal energy of jupiter expressed in the sign of capricorn it's like and then the name of the card is change right so if you're reading cards and you strip out the names and forget about the pictures and just look at it in terms of this magical alphabet which it kind of is and you like write them down I mean, you can see a whole different side of tarot you know these you know this this planet appears this many times in this reading or this elements appearing in these places in this reading and you forget about the pictures and the labels and just go off of what what heavenly bodies or forces or whatever and i'm over all this shit now okay but i'm just saying it's back in the day this is the approach and so it's like a, a system of uh of geomancy you know like terrestrial astrology but unlike the uh the actual heavenly bodies you are casting them and they're going into random arrangements instead of just being you know coursing through the sky or whatever on their tracks that they never go off of so the possibilities, you know, in, in, in this sense, you could say that uh, doing a tarot card spread is like casting a chart, like an astrology chart, but it's, it's, it's not. It's, 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 it's the same thing, but in, in a totally different way, right? So I used to have all of those associations like memorized. Not that I tried to, but I just read them enough to where I had them all in my head. And I discovered some interesting stuff. You can map out the, you can make like a Mandela off of a chessboard with the inner four by four square having the 36 cards mapped onto them in a circle and the outer ring of, of squares on a chessboard with the court cards mapped to them. And it makes like a astronomically correct like calendrical mandala where this you're squaring this circle and i'm getting way deep here i'm gonna i'm gonna pull it back i'm gonna pull it back but uh yeah like i was like hey i've never seen this before i think maybe i came up with this there's like a chessboard in a park where i live and i used to on the first day of spring for about three years in a row i would go out there and take sidewalk chalk and a compass made from a stick and a piece of string and i would make that mandala every spring equinox for a few years but the point is i got real freaking into that shit back in the day and and my life was a total mess at the time and i think those are related right this is uh all that mumbo jumbo shit is very often um for people who feel a lack of personal power and you know feel like their shit's out of control <clears throat> and maybe they don't want to just let go and let God. They want to have their hand on the the wheel in some weird, possibly misguided sense. Um, I definitely feel now that the you know the final the final secret of occultism is that if you stick your head far enough up your own ass, you'll you will see God. You will find out how full of shit you really are, and uh, well, and you'll figure out why. Actually, Book four uh, starts with yoga. Right. 
because yoga, it's like, you're going to need your flexibility for this later for your high degree tricks. What were you going to say, man? No, I was going to say, actually, the, the final holy of holies for occultism is uh, the realization that your penis is a magical instrument. And from that point on, you come up with a host of bizarre names for it and put it into all of your grimoires as kind of a little bit of uh, uh, locker room humor amongst your other mag uh, magicians. Uh, yes, the old uh, skin flute. I've heard of this. <laughs> Good old raw. Oh, man. So anyway, this is like a whole lifetime ago. OK, so you were asking about the record. So <clears throat> my life was shit, you know, and I kind of and I and I had this tarot as like this adopted magical alphabet <clears throat> and like arcanum that I had kind of taken on and, and be had become very conversant in this language. So I kind of had I hatched this plan you know, that I was going to move from the bottom to the top of the, of, of the elements. So it was going to be first year is year of the, the disc. I'm going to get my shit together job wise and, you know, where, where I was going to be, get my, get my home, my house in order, and you know, that kind of thing. And then, and then the next year was going to be the year of the sword and I was going to get my mind together and then it was going to be the year of the cup, get my heart together. And then by the, you know, the end of it, it was going to be spirituality or whatever. I don't even, I don't even think I got through that far, but it was just sort of like a, a framework for making a plan for getting your shit together. And it's embarrassing, almost, almost embarrassing to just look back and think that I was, that I was thinking that way. I kind of drove myself crazy, uh, <clears throat> but it worked. And uh, the synchronicities of it <clears throat> were pretty amazing because I did get that – I did get the goal you know, of the first year. I even had – somebody even gave me – somebody I worked with. I must have just been a complete pity case. Gave me a 1993 lead gray Saturn car because I didn't have a car. And it was like, this is the year of the disc. It's the Earth element. That's like your Saturn, you know, planet, you know, the lead Saturn, the 93 thing. And somebody gives me this car. I'm like, yes, it's the year of the disc. And the inexorable Saturnal momentum forward is it's now begun, you know. And I got got a, like a good job that I had for seven years after that. And <clears throat> and then the next year, um, you know, I was living where I live now in, in, uh, in Arizona and there's a little music scene here and I got all my old notebooks and started working on songs like really, uh, you know, with some discipline and like really trying to do it, you know, and hooking up with other musicians and not just being like a busker on the street, but like trying to get some craft, you know, cause I, you know, I had kids and had all this stuff going on in life. And it's like, I really, I'm never going to be like some touring rock star and I'm, I'm fine with that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So anyway, I, I really started getting, uh, records, you know, kind of in the pipeline. And actually by the end of the year of the sword, I put out a, uh, a single, you know, a song called aftermarket on this, uh, you know, this blues festival, uh, Bisbee blues fest, 2008, you know, I got to have like a professionally produced song for like first time ever. And, uh, and then the next year 
was going to be the year of the cup. And I got into, I'll just give you the super short version, like a custody battle on steroids, like, you know, to get my, my son, right. Which I did. And, uh, the emotional, uh, labor, uh, the, I don't want to say toll, although yes, but like it, it was a, a an opportunity to be put into a position where I had to do some real work to be worthy of him and myself. And there was just a whole lot of growing up that happened. And, and it's not like that record is like all about all that, but it kind of is. It's not some, you would never know it if you're listening to it. Cause it's not, that's not how the songs go, you know, but there's a, for me, it is, you know, and, uh, for me, I can hear that in it. other people, you know, it holds up really good, but it's, there's a water theme to the whole album, you know, um, song about, uh, making a deal with the Virgin Mary. You know, if you get me out of Tucson, I'll build you a little shrine, which I did. It was a song about the moon. And, uh, so it's got some of that stellar celestial stuff in there. But um, there was just a lot of emotion that really went into that that record. And it's it's magic. And it was magic. And I intended it as magic. A song called Queen of Spades on there um, that uh, I guess you can look in Crowley's Book of Thoth for the decode on what is being talked about in that album. I'll just give that away. Nobody probably knows that. Then if they ever hear this and they know who I am, they're like, Oh, is that where you, yes, it's a tarot reference, dude, queen of spades. So anyway, I, I played that song on the courthouse steps when I had court, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like manifesting this shit. Uh, and you know, and then for the year of fire or whatever, I don't know. By that point, it was like, I realized that, that the thing with my son was the point the whole time. It wasn't about all this bullshit, this tarot bullshit. And uh, having accomplished what it was supposed to be about, um, that magic aspect of it and the madness of it and the foolishness of it really faded away over the course of like the next year or so. And for the year of fire, I met my wife, I guess. She's an Aries. So I'm going to just go with that. Um, and I told her, you know, one time we'd been together about a year, you know, the, I pulled off all this stuff that I'd set out to do. And I, you know, I did it with my little woo-woo stuff and my songs, which I thought of as spells back then. And she's like, man, shut up with that shit. You, you, you did it because you did the work. You showed up and did that shit. It isn't your stupid cards, you know. So that's uh that's good. That's that's the first rule of any good relationship is to make sure you are the crazy one. So I have that. <laughs> I can say that. But I want to say something about those those years because it was a weird thing because uh when the year of the disc was passing into the sword and it was like, you know, I would see stuff like break down, like the framework of the previous year would, would, would start to fray. And it was like, I started after the second time I started realizing like, 
the, the, the signs here are telling me that we're passing from one to the other, like the Saturn broke down a year later, right? After declaring the year of the disc and getting my little Saturn car that got me back to Arizona, when it's sword time, it broke, you know, and, and, <laughs> and then by the end of the year of the cup, the whole thing broke. But um, just to close on the year of the cup, I just want to say for like for any you know musicians that have been out there or whatever, like from from the time of stepping into the studio to like a CD release party, it was three months, which is like not advised, but we did it and it was it was crazy like how fast that whole thing you know went from start to finish, and people still listen to it around town to this day so it kind of it holds up pretty good for how how fast it was but yeah so that's year of the cup there's the the underground story of of that whole thing good heavens what a what a wacko i was man but anyway yeah that's so that's year of the cup i highly recommend going back to back in the day there no it's interesting um you know for me on a personal level too because i actually went through quite a you know significant transformational experience myself uh you know that kind of time frame like uh 2007 to like about 2009 or something like that it was for me that was actually kind of the point too when i felt like i finally got control of my life yeah same um, time yeah weird yeah well we found each other eventually so yeah no <laughs> shit that's good man all right, so I'm under the impression you kind of uh, had a moment between Cup and Blues. You used to uh, work in a local government office, and later on you spent a season in the uh, the Freemasonic fraternity, which you talked about in our Techos episode. Uh, somewhere in between, there was an episode of sleep paralysis that uh, kind of broke you down and brought you from one place to another. Uh, do you want to get into that? Ooh. I really do. But I'm also like, man, this is where, you know, if you're out of your comfort zone and you're being like vulnerable or whatever, I guess that's how, uh, that's how, you know, you're in the good, you're in the zone. Right. So, so yes, yes, I will, I will get into that. Um, I used to work like in like, uh, planning and zoning stuff, you know, um, as a volunteer, as a staffer, like telling people what they can and can't do with their land. It's just, it's just trash. I mean, zoning is like a, you know, it's a fairly new thing. It's a modern industrial thing. It's a, it's a necessary evil. And a lot of times it is, it is evil. <laughs> um, nobody wants a McDonald's right next to their bedroom window where people throw their trash on it. But if you want to do something, you're like, Oh, these government people won't let me, uh, you know? So I worked as one of those land use hall monitor regulator types here in the very libertarian freedom land of uh, Southern Arizona. It's a bad combination in some cases, but, uh, cause I don't know if you knew this, but when Jesus wrote the constitution, he didn't say nothing about no building permits and no zoning. So it's a, it's, it can be a tricky job. So anyway, um, I got into this, this situation I mean, and, and I love, I, I love bureaucracy. Okay. You can't put a man on the moon or build the great pyramids without some kind of system for organizing human behavior and work and efforts. So I've done it for a long time. I see the benefits of it. Uh, the first casualty of bureaucracy is often common sense. 
and there are casualties and that's always been the case but uh, generally speaking if it's done in good faith you you can maybe have a good result now a lot of people probably like who the hell is this guy but oh well um so one of these casualties um there was a uh, a native american man and uh a couple of his partners that used to do um some i'll say medicine for uh for people they held sweat lodges on their own property somewhere in freedom land down here and uh and they've been doing it for a long time and they'd done this for you know some young people that were kind of in trouble it wasn't like some of that troubled teen kind of stuff that you see like john brisson and his buddy getting into was a lot more wholesome than that and a lot more low-key and it wasn't an industry or anything but it had kind of come out of some you know just really really genuinely just helping people um, of different ages things like that so and so one of their neighbors have one of these events you have to have a fire if you have sweat lodge you have to have a uh, some coals you know so somebody you know probably living in an rv illegally quote unquote turns them in on a, a violation saying i don't know what they're doing over there i think they're partying or maybe they're doing drugs or something but like you know under state law for land use if, if there's like a zoning complaint it has to be resolved and so if you're doing something on a property it has to now be put into a category that's acceptable for that zoning and if you can't find it or if you can't make it happen then you have to stop doing that and so i as a planner got handed this uh handed this you know talk to this guy figure out if we can make whatever he's doing out there work and so i talked to the guy and he told me what they were doing out there and it it about broke my heart like like okay uh you know is it going to be a church oh then it's got to have <laughs> so many parking spaces and an ada space you know is it you know what is it you know like this activity that's going on on this thing and long story short is in spite of all my best efforts and sometimes impassioned advocacy like there's no buildings at all there's no building footprint it's, it's just all you got to do is just not do it anymore and you know, nobody would ever know anything was even there you know so it's not like an illegal structure or something no but but no couldn't do couldn't do anything about it and now i'm the 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 little white government agent guy that gets to kick an indian off his land and tell him he can't do this shit anymore and I I died inside a little bit, you know, from that. I just it just uh it fucked me up to have to be that guy. And they're like, yeah, no, you you do the talking, you tell them. Like, okay, so and uh and so uh I did, and and I called him up to tell him this, and I don't know if it was I think it was before I actually had to have that phone call with them. It was either right before or it was right after. 
but I had a, I had a dream that I wrote down at the time and I went and looked back at it, uh, recently. And I'm glad that I wrote it down at the time. You always should write your dreams down, especially when it's some crazy ass shit like this. Uh, the detail, I'd forgotten a lot of it, but here's basically what happened. I'm up in the kind of the Chiricahua mountains, you know, home of the Chiricahua Apache Geronimo people that we, we talked about it in the Tecos episode a little bit. And, uh, these two Apaches walk past me and they look all pissed off at me. And I don't know what's, what's going to happen if I was about to get attacked or whatever. And, uh, after they pass by, um, a group of about 10 different native Americans whose, uh, various styles of dress and tattoos and hair and accoutrements suggested that they were from several different nations from around North America, maybe South. And, uh, one of them I think was like Osage. He had his, uh, his whole front of his scalp exposed, like, like, you know, like his hair was in, in a ponytail in the back, but like it had like been shaved in the front half of his head. And he had a, a big oval on his forehead with like a star cross, you know, like, uh, the, the points taper four points tapering in four directions in an oval on his forehead in like red ochre, you know, it was like a deep red color. And this guy in the dream was like a medicine man. And, uh, and I told him that I needed <clears throat> healing. This is in the dream, right? So I told him I needed healing. So, you know, we can help you out with that. And, uh, next thing you know, I've been, I'm, I'm wrapped in a shroud, uh, on the ground in front of these guys that make like a semicircle around me. And, um, and I'm wrapped tied in a shroud and, and this is the point where I wake up in the dream and I can't move. So I have to look, I look this up later and figure out that this is, this has all the, 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 it was, it was sleep paralysis is what it was. And I never experienced anything like that before. Um, and And so this lasted for a minute and, uh, and then they unwrapped me and I got up and as I'm getting up, there's this group of white dudes that are walking up the hill to where we're doing all this stuff. And they got this old timey kind of look to them, suits and vests and black and, you know, maybe one of them, they got like some top hats on and stuff like that. And, uh, and at that point, these, these Indians, they, uh, they scramble off of their ceremonial thing that they're doing with me on my behalf. And they start acting like clowns and they, uh, form like a human pyramid, like a tech, 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 you know, like four, three, two, one, you know, like 10 of them kind of like you'd see cheerleaders, uh, make like a human pyramid. They did that and they're making all these jokes and they're trying to tell these white guys that, Oh, what we're doing is totally Christian. It's totally kosher. We're, we're good. Right. We're cool. At that point, I see this, uh, skeleton, skeletal, like dead figure walking around in the shroud that I was just in. 
and this was like me, like, uh, like I had projected out this, uh, this skeletal figure when I was on the ground in my little sleep paralysis thing. And like my soul had spat out some kind of corpse that was now walking around and approaches me and say, you doing all right? How you feeling? You feel any better? <laughs> you know, kind of thing like that. So it was one of the most crazy uh, dreams. It was more than a dream. It was like literally like a sleep paralysis thing. And, and if you look it up, you can, uh, in, in Spanish, they have a, an, an, you know, a, a term for this dead body on top of you where it's like a type of kind of supernatural sleep paralysis event that, uh, that includes like a dead, like a, like a, like a corpse laying on top of you. And that's why you can't move in the dream, you know, and it's like fairly common enough to where it has its own, um, euphemism. So in my dream, I was laying on top of a dead body, I guess, but in, in the normal nomenclature, they they'll say there's a dead body on top of you and that, that, therefore you can't move. So I told the guy about the dream. Either in the same conversation, I told him he had to move or soon after. I don't remember. And this guy did something that, you know, it, it made me just break down in my office and start crying. He, like, actually said, look, we're going to do one more of these lodges. And I have some other land somewhere that I'm not going to fucking tell you where it is. And we're going to do it there from now on. But we're going to do one more here. And we'd love it if you would join us. And it, it messed me up because I felt, uh, super bad about the whole thing, you know? And, uh, and, and here's this guy saying, you know, it's cool. We understand it's not your fault. You did what you could come to our last, you know? And, uh, and so I did, I got to go to this thing and there were a couple of young men there that had, uh, there were had been called to come because they had been to that spot doing that activity several times in their teenage years. And now they're in their twenties and they're coming back with gratitude and, and they're saying goodbye to this spot that had been a ceremonial place for them for, you know, I don't know, 20 years. <coughs> and they gave me a little pouch of tobacco and, uh, and it was not too long after that, that, uh, I realized like, uh, uh, you know, I I'd had dreams about like Freemasonry as well for years before that, probably having to do with that tarot golden dawn shit and how they had, you know, Israel regarding definitely suggested you should start out. If you're interested in the Western mysteries, you should join Freemasonry. Right. Um, but my grandfather was one too. And I, I, I'd always been really, really curious about it ever since I was a kid. And so I had this dream that was like an initiatory experience that was broken up by some white dudes in the dream. And, and then I had that, that, that lodge that I went to sweat lodge. And I guess somewhere in there, I realized like I needed to, uh, it was going to be, it was my destiny to pursue an initiatic experience and I'm not an Indian. And so I may as well do the, the white boy version, you know, no cultural appropriation for a white man to join the Masons, none whatsoever. <laughs> the only appropriation 
is like if if a woman joins and is allowed to join, that's the only cultural appropriation of whatever happened. Um, I don't know why any woman would ever want to be in the Masons, but you know, to the extent that they do. Anyway, uh, so the next year, you know, I did, I did join the Masons, and I was in it for like three or four years, and and uh, having been somebody that worked in local government and had been to like city council meetings and. It was just amazing. Like it's like this civic religion where they pantomime and act out the kinds of otherwise boring things that are just the nuts and bolts of like the American system of government. But it's kind of like a church. But that's like literally what they're doing. And I talked about this in the Tecos episode. So as a little government bureaucrat, it was like, wow, this is a. I know this is the part where we say the pledge to the flag, right? <laughs> it's amazing how compatible all that is with the. So this is why I was talking about in the Tecos episode, how like that the Masonic Lodge radiates out from its little mystical behind closed doors lodge setting. The radiation that comes out of it is nothing more or less than the American system of government. And that is well and truly. Uh, the Masonic conspiracy, <laughs> the most successful of all of them, is nothing more or less than the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant patriarchal Republican democracy system of government that we all kind of grew up in. That's the Masonic conspiracy, I promise. But that, that was it. That's At least that's the biggest one, the biggest and most successful of them all. But uh, – when I wound up quitting that job, I, you know, we're going to get into some like liminal stuff here. You know, I, I <clears throat> lived long enough to have that <clears throat> big time white people problem of, of I guess I'm just going to call it a midlife crisis. You know, I got to a point where it was like, I'm not growing. I'm not being challenged. I have unfinished business. I have stuff I want to do. I'm spinning my wheels, you know, I got my kids, you know, I did all these things. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I got a good job, blah, blah, blah. Why, why do I want to just like fuck off and go do something stupid, you know? And so I had like this kind of two year long, uh, period of, of that kind of building up. And when it finally broke, uh, I went up. And I I decided I was going to cash in my retirement and and get a master's degree. How's that for some rock and roll midlife crisis? (laughs) Sounds boring, but, you know, unlike a a mistress or like a Maserati, you know, it it wouldn't depreciate as soon as you drive it off the lot. Right. So I had my my uncle actually gave me some very good counsel at the time. He's like, I know what you're talking about. I know this is that thing. He's like, you're headed for this threshold of change and you can't stop it from coming anymore. And it's not a matter of you choosing or not choosing it. If you live long enough, it'll happen. And every time the sun goes around the earth and you get up every day and put your pants on, you're one day closer to that. So knowing that you don't have a choice but to go through that, cross that threshold to you know the halftime show of life. You, the choice you do have is when you come on the other side of it, do you want to be like full of regret and failure? Or do you want to be able to look back and go, fuck yeah, I leveled up. 
I'm glad, you know? And so thank God I got that advice from him. Um, cause I could have done something really stupid. Instead, I just stripped down my underwear and got a, got a master's degree in my living room. So, uh, which was cool. And that's when I found your blog and started reading all your stuff about the American security council and world anti-communist league and stuff. And, and, uh, decided, you know, that that's what I was going to do for my, for my history thesis. And I wound up with this manuscript from like the early years of Wackle and it's, it's your fault. But also, um, when I quit, uh, you know, it had been four years and, uh, it was like a, a nice little mountain in Bisbee with a cross on the top. And, and I, uh, had a little small portion of mushrooms and, uh, and, uh, that pouch of tobacco that they'd given me at that sweat lodge. And I took that pouch and those mushrooms and a bottle of water and went up to the mountain and, uh, took some papers and I, I just rolled up and smoked that tobacco that they gave me and, uh, and tripped out by myself on the mountains up there and just said, I'm never, you know, fuck this, fuck telling people what to do with their land. I'm never kicking an Indian off their land ever again, blah, blah, blah. I'm quitting this job. I'm going to, you know, kind of had like a primal scream, uh, peak experience up on the mountain. And then, uh, and then I, then I went forward with all that other stuff, but but that fall is when I went into the studio to record Mystic Blues. So that's that period between Year of the Cup and Mystic Blues where things got normal and then they got weird. Yeah, there's peaks and lows. Um, okay, so let's get into Mystic Blues then. Uh, you got another chance to go deep into your back catalog of songs. This is where you got into all the uh, the weirdest stuff in the early days and build on those old songs and really lay it all out. Uh, you say it's your masterpiece. Uh, what's up with Mystic Blues then? I love my newest record. Don't don't get me wrong. It's it's there's real quality there. The production is the best of any of them the variety of songs and styles is definitely the best. But in terms of like thematically coherent and, um, and just really speaking to like, it, it, I don't know. I'll, I'll just tell you. So, so uh, I was talking about all that tarot stuff. That was, I was way over it by that point. Right. And like I had said before, there was kind of a, a system of, of arcana, arcanum, you know, um, a magical alphabet that come from a bunch of old, weird, crusty, you know, dudes in the English Rosicrucian societies or whatever. And like, I quit the Masons around that time too, by the way, like 20 14 late 2014 i was kind of done and by early 2015 i was i was out of it so that was like three years and uh too much structure i wanted no structure you know except for the the school i guess but even that was like online thing so anyway uh but in earlier earlier in my life like way earlier like when i was a kid okay uh 
I got really into astronomy. You know, I'd go visit my dad in the summertime and, and, uh, he had a, what I thought was like a really cool, you know, reflector telescope looking at Jupiter, looking at Mars, looking at Saturn, looking at the moon. And I spent a whole lot of time doing that. I was out there when I was at his house in the summertime, I was like many, many nights, uh, with that telescope. And he got me like a little cheap kids telescope or refractor. And so even though Houston, the night sky is just trash is like non-existent. Um, nevertheless, you know, I was out there, I spent many, many nights just by myself looking for different planets. And if you ever messed with a telescope, especially in the old days back then, this is maddening trying to get something in the viewfinder, trying to get it into your actual, you know, field of vision through this little lens. And then when you do it lasts like three seconds because the thing's moving through the sky and then you kind of almost have to start over again. And, uh, and yet I, I spent a great deal of time doing it in spite of more failure than success. And in spite of the fact that it was a cheap telescope anyway, that wasn't even that great, but I had like Peterson's field guide to stars and planets and I'd be looking at these maps of the sky and looking up to see, you know, if I'm looking at the right constellation or not, or try to find this star cluster that it says is here, but it's Houston. So you can't see shit. Uh, and what I now realize is like that concentration, you know, it, it was like, it was like meditation, you know, it was, it really was, it wasn't, it didn't, it would, I wouldn't have called it that I was a kid. But that's what it was. And uh, I had this poster on my wall that was like painted with glow-in-the-dark paint for every little star. And it was like a map of the entire sky with the Milky Way. And uh, it would glow in the dark, all the stars and planets on it. And uh, I, I tried to find it. I can't remember the name of the artist. It was some famous French artist or somebody that had painted this thing. And you can find it. And it's like $2,000. I wish I, I wish I'd hung on to it. But uh, I spent a lot of time staring at that thing you know, uh, in my room. And, and when the lights were out, there's the stars in the sky right there on my wall and the Milky Way. So I, I was super duper into astronomy. Okay, fine. So, you know, years later, um, I'm living in Missouri, had this girlfriend that I was, you know, really desperately kind of stupid, stupidly like, you know, young, immature excuse for love desperately in love with this person and uh and we broke up and uh that was a, a status change um that engendered uh about a two year long series of visions and dreams incredibly vivid um like i'd walk out of the house at night, look up at the sky and it looks like the earth is inside of a nebula. The whole sky, none of it's black. It's all like purple and azure, you know, blue. There's an asteroid belt going around the earth. And just like the, the moon, you'll see uh, in a crescent. You can kind of see if it's bright enough, you can see the part that's shaded. Nevertheless, it's not totally blacked out. It's a little gray on a good night. 
all these asteroids look like that. They're like little crescent moons of different sizes. And you can see, you know, just, just the level of detail was insane. See the Pleiades or the Southern Cross as if those stars are way up close to planet Earth. And they've got the, the rings around them and the spikes of light coming out of them like you see in a long exposure you know, coffee table book quality astronomy photos and little spaceships flying around in the rings of uh, dust and nebula and, and uh, asteroid belt going around the earth. And not just one time, but like multiple times. Dreams involving uh, bears. And in one dream, uh, these little seven dwarfs come down the street of my house in front of my house. I was growing up in Houston and there's like four of them and they're, they're all holding a rope, all seven of them. And so the four of them that are in the front are making like a square or a rectangle. And then there's three behind them and they've all got the rope, the same rope. And then realizing later, cause I'd written all this stuff down. Uh, I was keeping a dream journal that, you know, these little these little dwarfs or gnomes or whatever that are running down my street, this rope that they're holding, the, the pattern that it makes is the Big Dipper, you know. Um, and, you know, so like I and it's like. This is mystic, right? I, I'm not trying to make this happen. That would come later with me getting stupid with the tarot. This was like spontaneous stuff that was happening to me. And it was like twice a week. For about a year to 18 months. And there's a whole bunch of other dreams I could describe. I'm not going to sit here and get into every little dream that I had, but they were incredibly vivid. They were lucid. I was writing them down, which increases your recall, your ability to recall your dreams goes up if you, if you write them down. And uh, the level of detail and the mythic kind of poetry of it all. Like you're given this picture of these dwarves running down your street with a rope in their hand that a month later you realize, oh, my God, that's the Big Dipper. That's, you know, <laughs> these are literally the stars of Ursa Major running down my street. You know, you don't even know it at the time. It's like your your dreams are giving you clues that you figure out later. So what I now understand was that this was my own arcana. You know, my own little magical or mystical alphabet or, you know, something approximating it that doesn't have an author. You know, it doesn't have a any baggage, like some Golden Dawn tarot shit. You know, it actually is like it, it came out of me as a, a, a young man, as an adolescent, spending a lot of time looking at the sky and then being revisited by that same those those experiences have been metabolized in like this sort of personal mythology that was unfolding when i would go to sleep in my 20s and uh a lot of my songs that i i started you know i started writing some songs back then and a lot of them had you know were about venus or jupiter or you know uh, the Scorpio constellation as a as a crawfish instead of a scorpion and song like a whole trilogy of songs about Ursa Major, uh, <laughs> you know. So it was it was 
it was out of that early period and some of those early songs and some that I wrote later that became mystic blues. And, um, that album is on Bandcamp, and you can, you can hear it. You can listen to it for free or you can buy it. Um, but the, uh, you know, it's got this airy quality to it. There's wind chimes on it. There's nature sounds on it. There's crickets. There's throat singing, which my cousin, if you can talk him into it, he'll do throat singing from time to time. And we got him to do it. He's a drummer and he, he played the drums on it and just kick ass hand percussion that he played on it. And, uh, and that's all like, I always love hand percussion and, um, kind of my style, which has that little, just a little hint of that gimbri ish kind of simplicity to it, you know? And it just had just the way I play some of these songs is 12. It just sounds kind of odd, you know, like the melodies of it. It's, I don't know. I don't know. It, it sounds odd to me. It doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard, which is what I like about my music because it's like, it's like uh, not everybody likes it necessarily. I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But like whether you like it or you don't like it, in my opinion, it doesn't sound like anything else. Like I, you know, that, that's what I think. I don't know. You, you heard some of it's, uh, Steven, maybe, maybe you can pick out something that it sounds like. I mean, there were some things where I was like, yes, on this guitar solo, go, I want David Gilmore, Pink Floyd, <laughs> do it, you know, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's, there's a very unique sound and, and several of the songs are about like Venus or, um, uh, what's the other one? Jupiter in the autumn sky. And there's a metamorphic poem about turning into a mountain. That's actually a yeah, line. Yeah, no, I remember that. Yeah. I was just thinking of the, um, the one song where, yeah, you're basically just reciting the poem essentially. Yeah. With some like, like nature sounds and stuff, you know? Yeah. It's like a spoken it's, word thing. That's uh, I, is that kind of like a doors influence. Maybe it kind of made me think a bit of like a Morrison thing. I guess so. Um, I, I really was into him and his poetry such as it is, uh, doesn't hold up that great to me now sorry jim now, such uh, as it is was a, a an apt way of putting it certainly yeah but you know when you're a 17 year old little quasi gothy little sad traumatized kid you know it's like you just love you some jim morrison and then later on it's like okay your entire catalog is about how you can't get it up okay i get that now i didn't understand <laughs> i didn't understand this when i was a kid but but now I get it. Yes, the snake was pale gold glazed and shrunken, and we were afraid to touch it, and the sheets were hot. Dead. I see. Yeah, he lived in the pre-Viagra times. Um, might not have had a career uh, if, if, he, if he was on the scene now. Like, you know, they make a pill for that. Anyway, uh, yeah, I get, I, somebody else said that reminded them of Jim Morrison. Me, it was like my voice can go down pretty low, and then when you get those studio headphones on where you can just like hear yourself breathing it just does something. It's like an invitation for you to go into a different mode or octave or, um, volume. So I can get really low like this. And when I was talking like this and saying the poem, it sounded like I'm out in space in my ears because of these kick-ass studio headphones that are, you know, you can hear somebody, you know, 
footsteps like a half a mile away with these sensitive thousand dollar mics or whatever that look like a lightsaber. It's like, geez, man. So I wasn't trying to sound like Jim Morrison, but yeah, there's probably a little influence there, like I said earlier. So, <clears throat> but it's a, it's, it's a really interesting, uh, 12 track offering. I'll just, I'll put it that way. And it's coming out of my own arcana, spontaneous, the, the mystic, you know, and, uh, and that's why, you know, it just, it just makes me think of, about like that compared to like year of the cup and year of the cup is, I mean, it's all very authentic, man. There's no, there's nothing contrived about any of it, but it just came out of that stuff. But my own arcana, my own dreams that just have come to me, you know, whatever. It's not God's gift to anybody else but me or whatever. But uh, I trust that. I trust that more. You know, I still have that with me. Even the tarot thing was a phase, you know. But the dreams are still with me. All right, before we get into Liminal Proper, do you want to go over uh, the artwork for these three releases? There's like a running motif through all three rooted in the tarot, right? Um, yes, or or maybe you could say, like I was talking about earlier, if you strip off the pictures and the titles, the the, uh, the terrestrial astrology, you know, the, the planetary symbols of them. You know, when, when we did Year of the Cup... Uh, the album art here's a little sinky thing uh aerial photos of the barry goldwater air force uh testing range bombing range which is in uh just east of yuma arizona so he's got like a whole bombing range named after him but anyway uh they fly the ufos out there yeah uh they have these um uh landing uh strips that are in the shape of equilateral triangles that you can see on like, you know, Google earth or whatever, you can see these triangular shaped, uh, landing strips. And, uh, we use those for the album art. And, uh, I told my bestie, you know, who was designing the cover, like, I want a red, I want a blue triangle upside down on the front. Cause that's the water, the hermetic, you know, golden Donny kind of water symbol for cups. And on the back, I want a red triangle pointing up. And there's a song called Red Blues on the record. was talking about how I had the blues so long that all I can see is red, <laughs> which was true at the time. Uh, and uh, so he did it. And, and, and it was like, you know, uh, the idea is to make them not only the same size on the front and back, in the same position on the front and the back, so that you could drill a hole in this CD jewel case and like stick a chopstick through it and start spinning it and it would make like a, a red and blue hexagram and, and it wasn't until just like the other day when i finally got the cds for liminal it really tripped me out it was like the year of the cup disc has a uh, cassini the old astronomer pioneer guy his his rendering of the moon is what we put as the as the disc uh art on year of the cup right so it's like you have this hexagram with the moon in the middle of it which is supposed to be the planet you know associated with changeability and waxing and waning and all this kind of stuff so it's like 
it's kind of like this hieroglyphic sort of poetry. You know what I'm saying? Like these these three symbols, the planet of the moon and a fire triangle and a water triangle that all, you know, are of a piece with each other. So anyway, the other day when I got the liminal CD, I took out the year of the cup and actually cut the triangles out because I'd never done it before. I forgot. I don't know. I just I was really fussy about it being just exactly like that 11 years ago. But then I never drilled and stuck the chopstick through it. So I actually cut it out with some scissors and uh, it made, you know, they were just the right size. And if you put these triangles together uh, and lay them over the disc, they, the, the points of the triangle almost go all the way out to the edge of the disc. And it, it, it just was deeply satisfying to me. So, you know, back then I was like, all right, Stuart, you know, we're putting the moon on this one. If I ever make a second one. You know, it'd be cool to have three discs and have one have the sun, one have the moon, and one have the stars on it. And uh, <clears throat> so Mystic Blues has the stars. I can't remember the the artist, but it was one of those like 1700s or 1800s, like hand-drawn illustration map of the sky. You know, all the constellations and stars and stuff. That's the that's the the, the disc of uh, of Mystic Blues, the CD. That's what it looks like. And so a local artist uh, here in town, Bill, did the art for Liminal, and it's a sun. So I got the sun and the moon and the stars, and, you know, we're way off the tarot at this point, but I, I kept with the sun, moon, stars uh, motif, and now it's like the cycle is complete, you know, three of discs, work, Mars and Capricorn. <laughs> So I made like a hexagram out of my original hexagram from Year of the Cup. And I've got one triangle with the sun and moon stars pointing up and one pointing down. And just like, I don't know, man, it's like an 11 year long journey. And to actually assemble the physical manifestation, you know, pieces of this arcana and like actually lay it out on a table and like it's full circle. I don't know, just something about it. I mean, it's just just still nerdy, still weird after all these years, but it was freaking cool. So, yeah. That's awesome. All right. So, first off, we're liminal. Um, what was up with the name? It had a lot of interesting things for me personally because uh, the Penny Royal guys named their chat site the Liminal Lodge and uh, one of the more recent works by uh, Joseph Matheny, the creator of Ong's Hat and uh, by default, the alternate reality games I've written so much about lately was <clears throat> Liminal, the book that is to say about Matheny. Well, I should mm. take that back. Nobody actually. It was a. It was an anonymous note. It was. Uh, it was a pseudonym uh, that the author used. So we don't actually know if it was Matheny. Just that he's. Uh, uh, he likes to promote it by handing out uh, copies uh, to people that he finds interesting on Twitter. Um, anyway, mm. what made you up to go with the name for Liminal? You know, it's it's weird because when when I. Uh, <clears throat> was starting to tell people, Hey, I'm about to put this record out here locally. You know, it's going to be called liminal watch for it. It's going to come out in February, you know, and another, um, wonderful, uh, husband and wife duo of musicians, old anxiety here in town. Uh, I hear from, from the lady there and she's like, that's so weird. We're, we're about to release a song called liminal. You know, this is like a month ago. <laughs> Or two months ago. So it's in the air, man. It's in the air. Then, you know, you have a 
Jason Horsley, uh, his podcast, I was, I was really followed his work pretty closely for about three or four years. I kind of, kind of got into doing this podcast thing this last year. I don't know if you knew about this, but it's kind of like made me have blinders on to a lot of other stuff, which is good. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so I have this thing on my computer. It's like a word document, you know, a text. <clears throat> and the, the name of the document is called liminal. And I went and looked at this the other day and it's from the date on it is April 4th, 2012. So I just want to say I got there first <laughs> and I'd written this and, and, the, and it's just, a, you know, it's just some stream of consciousness trash, but I do have a timestamp. Um, I almost was going to call mystic blues liminal first of all, but I didn't, I decided to call it mystic blues instead. But, uh, um, and then I thought, well, my third record, I'll either call it elemental or I'll call it liminal. Or I'll call it Nine Lives, which is another story. That'd be my rock and roll record. That's that one I'm still working on. But uh, anyway, um, start off the little text telling, you know, re- recounting to myself this little story about, you know, I was in high school and I wore a kilt to school one day and they didn't like it. So I was at the office and woohoo, rebel teenager, whatever. And uh, the principal of the school said to me, you know, every now and then there's a kid like you that comes along. You ain't the first I've seen, but you're one of those one of those kids where as soon as they put you out in a in a spot in a yard, whatever, you're like, I want to find where the fence is. Where are the fences at around this spot so I can cut through them? That's what he said to me. And uh, funny enough, I live right down here by the big fence. <laughs> I haven't tried to cut through it yet, but uh, yeah, it's like what 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 is he saying? He's like he's saying. Uh, you're the kind of kid that wants to know where the boundaries are so you can violate the boundaries. Right. Um, <clears throat> and that's what, you know, real uh, poor articulation of liminal is. And so I, I always felt like a, like a contradiction, you know, like anarchist punk rocker that worked for the government. What, you know, um, conspiracy buff that joined the masons what the fuck (laughs) you know uh i don't know man like i listen to punk rock music and rap and stuff and then i write these this weird cosmic folk music what you know there's all kinds of things i could say like these contradictions where i feel pretty comfortable in my skin now a days but that's actually probably why i like you so much (laughs) pretty much all of my friends are like always have like odd contradictions like that in their personalities i always find people like that to be very fascinating (laughs) yeah it's been it's been a ride i'll tell you that and but but i always had this uh this oh and and a very religious soul that deeply wants to believe and a brain that won't let him you know that's the other one like the mind of an atheist and the soul of an just an absolute devotee has been particularly uncomfortable part of my life. You know, like I would really love to just be cool and, and turn off all that internal dialogue and just like go to church and just be a good little, you know, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but uh, there's a part of me that's always yearned to be able to, you know, just sincerely have that kind of religious experience. I think I'm I think I'm over it now. But uh I've gone to church over time, different times in my life, and I may yet go. 
Um, Mason's really scratched that itch for me, but only for a while. And then it was like, all right, I'm over it. I got to go to the next thing. But, um, yeah, like I was, uh, a boundary violator, you know, I have a, like a charismatic kind of personality, you know? And when you say something like that, it sounds like a, a brag or something, but Eh, you know, I mean, I guess it could be in some cases, but it's a pain in the ass a lot of times. You know, I've volunteered to do things here and there over the years, and I always wind up, you know, being asked to be the leader of it, you know, because I've just got like this way about me and I can I can get up in front of people and talk and and feel comfortable in my skin, you know, performing. I mean, I've acted. I've done really shitty, bad stand up comedy a couple of times. You know, and of course, playing music for people, you're violating the boundary of their eardrum with your music. And maybe they're trying to watch the game because the place won't turn the TV off while you're trying to sing your heart out to them. And they're like, oh, you're done. Am I, am I supposed to clap now? Is that, you know, like the, <laughs> the ego game of, of performing in front of people is just like, uh, but yeah, that's like my music going into your ears. And you knock, knock, let me in, you know, you're crossing a boundary, whether welcomed uh, or not. Um, And, you know, I one of the things that Horsley. That I really learned from him when I was really following his work closely. Is how much he. Like that book, The God of Trauma, Most Accursed Religion by Greg Mogensen, he, he turned me on to that from reading his stuff about like Whitley Strieber and, and that book, man, I read, you talk about a mind fuck. I read trickster and the paranormal and then turned around and read, um, a most accursed religion right after that. So trickster and the paranormal is about liminality and Victor Turner, you know, the anthropologist who came up with that, that term. And basically what it refers to is kind of the in-between space uh, between uh, non-initiate and initiate or, you know, the the threshold of childhood, adulthood, you know, day or night, you know, the twilight of dawn or dusk, you know, going through the border checkpoint to get to Mexico. (laughs) You know, you're in this in-between zone, the constitution-free zone of the border that goes 60 miles up north of the Mexican line in which your constitutional rights could be, could go bye-bye on the altar of expediency at any time. That's liminal in the liminal border militarized zone. Anyway. Um, so that concept is like fascinating to me. And then, and then reading those books and seeing how, you know, linking uh, trauma and charisma And people with weak boundaries, often people that have had their boundaries violated, which is almost everybody I know, and how that those kind of people that have weak boundaries are often the ones that have higher um, uh, degrees of like psychic ability and paranormal experiences and stuff like that, you know, and just that whole concept of. You know, like it was a whole different definition of hermetic that I hadn't really ever thought about because I thought about it in terms of my little mumbo jumbo earlier days. But, yeah, I'm really fascinated by that. So in, in 2012, when I wrote this little thing, 
at the end of it, I said, after talking about what a contradiction I was and how uncomfortable it was, I, the last little line, I said, I just learned a new word today and it's liminal. And I think the shoe fits, you know, something like that. So that word's been kicking around in my head for a long time. And in fact, that's how I found Horsley's uh, work in the first place, because he had the Liminalist podcast, which I discovered a couple, two or three years later. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's the explanation about that word. I'm pretty fascinated by it. And it looks like it's catching on. A lot of other people are, like you said, these other like the conspiranormal guys and whatever. So, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, so, um, you told me that the beginning of your songwriting, or at least your keepers, uh, go back to a, uh, season of heavy synchronicity. Tell me about that and what are the thoughts of synchronicity and how does it manifest in your life? Yeah, I was describing, um, all those, uh, cosmic, you know, lucid dream visions and, um, during that period of time, that's when I had a lot of heavy synchronicity and I didn't know that word. I didn't know what that word, I never heard it. And I thought, you know, I felt pretty special at the time because synchronicity does make you feel special, you know, you know what I mean? Like this meaningful coincidence. And then there's like two, three more of them. And you look back at them sometimes and it's, Maybe not as big of a deal as it felt like at the time, but at the time it sure felt like a big deal. Um, and some of it had to do, or some of those manifestations of it had to do with, uh, like that dream with the, with the big dipper, you know, um, had happened right around the time or, or not too long after that, um, I discovered this book by Jeffrey Ash called the Dawn behind the Dawn talking about the big dipper as like the oldest constellation that's been represented in art going back to the paleolithic. And like the way that I came around, came to find that book was like this really weird coincidence that isn't really that big of a deal now, but at the time it felt like I was on the path of something, you know? And so I just had this dream and I'm thinking about the stars a lot. And then I, I, luck onto this book and uh there's a couple other you know books and I'll, i won't mention too many of them but one of them man highly recommended piece of americana uh magical fiction um a book a little short book called blood sport by robert f jones and i saw it at a thrift store and uh the cover of it said, this book is like Carlos Castaneda meets Kurt Vonnegut. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. You know, so I, I snapped it right up and read it. And, and it's about this, uh, this river uh, that goes, starts up in Mongolia and flows around the world and around all of human settlements. And through all of human time. So if you're walking along this river in this book, you know, you time travel, you see some Aruk, you know, 30,000 year old uh, giant cattle from Europe in there. Or <clears throat> you might wind up in the middle of a firefight in Vietnam or, 
you know, just different kinds of like magical uh, time travel and space travel, you know, on Earth anyway, uh, kind of experiences happen while this man and his son are on a hunting trip down this river. And the river is called the Hasayampa River. And, uh, and then I was, you know, at the time I was really thinking about moving to Arizona. And so I'm in this, uh, geography class and doing, uh, looking at, um, we're looking at the United States geological survey webpage, which they have up on the screen in the class. And it's showing the flood stages of various rivers around the country. And one of them is the Hasayampa River. And I'm like, oh, no, whoa, 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 it's a real thing. And it's in Arizona. And I'm like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm moving to Arizona. I guess I'm on the path, you know. Um, and then that river actually doesn't even have water in it most of the time. But there's this uh, sort of Native American legend is said to surround this river that um, you can never tell the truth again if you drink the water from it. Which I always interpreted as, you mean you'll be a storyteller, telling stories, you know. But uh, maybe a literal way to interpret it was you, you'll never, you know, never tell the truth again. But I was also into stuff like uh, Hamlet's Mill. There was a book that was talking about ancient astronomical knowledge and how it was really well developed. And people understood the procession of the equinoxes way back into Neolithic times. And that all of human mythology is encoded with this astronomical, you know, data. I'm getting off the subject, but I was into all this stuff and these sources of knowledge, these books, these little signposts, whatever would like appear in my path. And I'm just giving some examples. There's other stuff that has to do with like people, but you know, whatever, doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, I'm just giving a, I'm giving you the cooler examples of it. But one thing I will say about it that I, you know, Bronco Malik, Bronco Malich, I don't know if I'm saying it right. Kali Tribune. When we did our fourth generation warfare podcast, I was talking about him and how it's like you need to bring a sign of the cross if you're going to study shit like Pizzagate because you're going to like be exposed to a bunch of evil stuff and you need to have your, you know, your armor of God kind of thing, right? That was, that's, that's where I brought him up before, but. He's a very much a traditionalist uh, thinker, and he's a deep thinker, um, and he's a conservative thinker, and I'm not, but I like to hear what other people have to say, and so I really value his perspective because he's got like Aristotelian metaphysics down, you know, so the guy is firmly rooted in what he said. Anyway, the point is he he did some writing about synchronicity and it's on some of his podcasts. You can hear his awesome voice and you can hear him like chain smoking while he's giving you this little lecture about what he thinks synchronicity is. And, uh, he was saying that it, it manifests a lot of times, um, during times of change in your life. And, uh, he said also that it's been a few years, but uh, that since I heard it or read it, but you know th those changes that you're going through that are that these synchronicities are appearing around, you know a lot of times they're not always good changes, like it's a change in your life or in your status or whatever, but it's it's you're going down rather than up, 
And um, from my earlier days of, of tarot, I kind of got conversant with uh, this idea. I think you were talking about with maybe David Metcalf it was recently on your totally excellent, by the way, patron interviews. Uh, listeners, you know, if you ever checked out the farm's patron, you really should because there's some really great stuff on there. Anyway, back to our program. Um, <clears throat> I think it was the David Metcalf one. We're we talking about some kind of computer app or, or phone app that you could. Oh, like, try to, yeah, where you're like trying to prime the pump and like force. Yeah, well, essentially, yeah, it claims to generate synchronicities. Yeah. Well. When I got like conversant with that magical alphabet, that hermetic alphabet of uh, the tarot back in the day, you know, looking back now, I can see how like that too would kind of prime the synchronicity pump. Like, like you know, if, if I see like to this day, okay, you know, let's say you take like a box of matches. And you're trying to get a match out and you just kind of like dump it out and like three or four matches fall out. You know, it's like, oh, that's three of wands. And then the planet and the sign. What is that? Three of wands would be, I don't know. I don't remember anymore. The sun in Aries, I think. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's Venus. Whatever. But like these associations would come to your head from just seeing like three matchsticks because that's a wand. It's fire, you know. Or like, you know, three coins come out of your pocket, you know. And there's an association with it, you know, or something like that, you know. Um, and so I also look back at that time and think of myself as having been a, a, a fucking crazy person. And some of the synchronicities that I generated, because like if you know these signs better, like you have a better um, uh, potentially you have a better standpoint from which to see the signs as they appear right so there can be like some noise going on with that or some of those like i was saying a minute ago like uh these meaningful coincidences may seem more meaningful at the time than they turn out to be later you know and so it's like um i don't know synchronicity is something you got to be careful with if for from my from my <clears throat> standpoint the season that i had the most crazy synchronicities happening you know in like a six month period was that same time that i started having all those crazy dreams but it was a time where uh you know my life started to go sideways you know like that's why bronco monolith's uh thing about you know yeah it's, it's it comes at a change change points in life and the changes aren't always good and i was like yeah that was me you know so sometimes those uh, synchronicities can become like a distraction or – and then sometimes they're not. Sometimes they can be good. I've had other times where it was – where uh, they led me in a good direction. Um, do, you kind of, <clears throat> do you think with synchronicities too, I mean there's also that kind of magical versus mystical distinction because, I mean, it does kind of seem like, you know, there's like this sort of random factor sometimes, but then other times it's like, you know – 
Uh, I, for instance, with myself, I have to be careful with numbers because I'm already kind of fixated on 17s and 23s to begin with. So yeah. if I've already had them on the brain a lot, then they start coming to me everywhere. But then there's other times where I haven't really been thinking about that at all. And then suddenly it's like, boom, there's a 17 there or there's a 23, you know, for example. Yeah. And so I, I, I think I see what you're saying. And it's like every now and then. Uh, a cigar is just a cigar and a 17 is just a 17. And, um, you know, you could, you could just let it, let it lay and it doesn't have to always be like that, but if you've got it like trained, okay, so what if three matches fell out of the box, man, just, just chill out. You know, you're trying to light this pile of light or what, you know, <laughs> um, I had some dreams with 17, man. And, and I seven, and that's the the star card, you know, um, Aquarius. And oh yeah, yeah. One link to Sirius and some uh, some claim. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I had uh, uh, like two or three dreams during that that period that had seventeen in them in some fashion, you know. And uh, yeah. So anyway, I talk about that after class or some other time or whatever. But I think I think it, I think my point is with it is like. Um, it's something like when you see it happen, you know, take note of it, but also like, don't take it too seriously. Have some detachment with it is, was what I would say. Like, uh, if you're just into synchronicity for its own sake, it could be like, like kind of like a drug. And next thing you know, you're lost. Cause you see like, oh, it's a sign, it's a sign, it's a sign. And then you're like, where the hell am I? I've been following these signs, but they don't actually go anywhere. Cause I'm fixated on the sign rather than the signified, you know what I'm saying? Um, some detachment. Well, I mean, I think also, it's well, I mean, also too, it kind of seems like, um, oh gosh, how can I put it? It's like, I think in a sense too, I mean, um, I was just reading something, this excellent uh, book about the KLF. Um, gosh, I can't remember the author's name right now, but it was talking about Robert Anton Wilson and uh, the 23 enigma. And essentially, uh, you know, the number 23 in and of itself was really irrelevant. It wasn't uh, the whole part of purpose of it wasn't really to get people to notice the 23 in and of itself. You could have done it with any number, really. It was just really to kind of change the way thinking and to start noticing the interconnectedness you know what exactly you're noticing isn't really what's important it's more that you're sort of um getting a glimpse of how like the broader structure operates i think uh, is the important thing to take away from synchronicities and not necessarily following all the different places that they take you which can you know in a lot of cases just ultimately drive you mad well exactly yeah you, you know to 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 the extent that um Bronco is right about it, like being a, yeah, this is a, these signs are telling you you're going down. <laughs> I mean, not always, but that's a real quick encapsulation of, of his synchronicity thesis. Please go yeah. check it out for yourself, and I'm probably way off. But um, yeah, I mean, the, that, I think the bigger true. thing is it's just uh, it's more about trying of uh, it's a different way of like learning how to view the world that I think is the important thing that it trains you to do. Um, it's sort of like I know Chris Knowles just had a great thing in his uh, one of his recent blogs where he was talking about kind of the nonsensical behavior that a lot of people report with, um, you know, UFO encounters. And I was kind of reminded of that when you were talking about uh, your dream with the Native Americans and how like they kind of started doing those like cheerleader moves or something like that right. it's like it the stuff just, seems yeah. absurd but it's also i think kind of a way of deep uh programming your mind almost you know kind of like giving you a different way of looking at the world 
Yeah. Yeah. And in, in that case, and with that dream, it was very clear to me, even in the dream that they were doing that to throw Whitey off their trail, you know, but I, I, I take your point, but at the same time, um, another way to look at synchronicity in my opinion, okay, this just, just all of this is just my opinion is, um, like a spontaneous divination from the universe to you. And um, divination, you know, in the most ancient, uh, you know, usage from the augers and the, you know, looking at flocks of birds and throwing the bones or whatever, you know, it comes uh, in a potentially stressful situation. Like we need this hunt to work. We need this battle to go our way, you know, so we're going to have this guy cut up a goat and see what his guts say (laughs) about this how this battle's going to go, you know? So it's like a potentially like changing situation that you need to kind of put your finger in your mouth and hold it up to the wind and see which way things are going. So there's like a, some anxiety maybe that's part of that. Like, I feel like I need to get my magic eight ball out. Cause I'm not sure what to do in this situation, you know, kind of thing. So like a spontaneous divination, just coming out of the ether, coming out of the universe to you that, um, maybe is uh triggered by some kind of stress or anxiety about change you know so that's that's what i think about synchronicity and a lot of people are a lot smarter about that kind of stuff than i am but that's just a little bit informed by some of my own experience and it's an interesting subject for sure and it's a real thing oh yeah absolutely yeah all right um so in february of this year you dropped liminal now there's only seven songs on it, but it's uh, it's all over the place. It's your shortest album, but there's also uh, the most lyrics uh, or more lyrics than any of the first two put together. And you obviously had some things you wanted to get off your chest. So what was really at the heart of Liminal? Uh, <clears throat> well, most of these songs, um, except for Eventide, I guess that kind of goes back to that's a throwback. Uh, song but i redid the lyrics last year but uh most of these songs i wrote in the last five years so it's like um not so many not so much from the back catalog of stuff that i'm trying to catch up with and publish and 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 bring to life but like it's newer stuff and uh it's got i mean you heard it there's like there's a there's rock and roll there's rap there's a freaking fiddle, sweet fiddly country song, you know, a song about turning into an owl. There's some, and that song, by the way, is called Arcanum. And I'll, I'll just, I'll digress one more time because, you know, one of the themes, I guess, that's emerging in this podcast is like, you know, you trust your own arcana and the, 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 the mystic stuff that comes to you rather than going and seeking out the magic or whatever. That's just my take on things. Other people's mileage may vary, but when I was a kid, man, um, me and those two buddies was talking about Rob and Dave, you know, we're like in the city is Houston, like South Houston. And find like the only, you know, one of the only like patches of woods forest that's anywhere around. It's not old growth by any means. It's just kind of, you know, low canopy, with some big tall cottonwood trees was kind of uh, brushy and not always easy to navigate in every place. But 
So we, we just started going and checking this place out because it was just something like, you know, natural, some kind of natural in a, in a place that did not have a lot of natural unmessed with land. Right. So we, we gravitated to it. And this is in my Jim Morrison face, you know, sorry, but, uh, anyway, uh, we're going out there and, uh, you know, crawling through this brush and I'm finding, um, these little rat skulls. You know, I, I later learned not, not long after I learned what they were, they're owl pellets, but I never saw an owl growing up. I don't think I heard an owl growing up. I didn't know, you know, that was like some wild kingdom shit to somewhere else. It ain't here, you know, but I guess it was. So, you know, we're finding these little packages and it's like a little, it looks like a little, uh, almost like a little turd or something, you know? It's like a little bundle of fur with these little bones in it and like these perfectly preserved like rat skulls. And it was just the damnedest thing. Like it was, it was, it, it just, it, it mystified us, you know, cause we, we just didn't know what they were. And, uh, and because of that, <clears throat> this perfectly natural, perfectly explainable phenomenon of literally an owl puking up the part of a rat that it couldn't digest. Nothing, nothing more or less. That's all it was. But there was like a dozen of them. It was like for me, and I think for them, uh, kind of like a mystical experience. It was kind of like some cryptid sort of, you know, I don't know, kind of made our hair stand on end a little bit. And on this tree out there in these woods, we took, uh, you know, like honeysuckle vines and feathers that we found out there, little small feathers from like blue jays and these rat skulls and these rat bones. And we cut back the bark on a tree and uh, in a little spot and like wove these vines through the little slits that we made in the bark and fastened one of these rat skulls to it and made like a little small fire ring at the bottom of it. And we made like this totem, you know, and like, it didn't come out of a book or it wasn't like, yeah, Israel regard. says the, the, you know, the thigh bone goes next to the, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? It wasn't anything like that. It was like this spontaneous, uh, this spontaneous thing. So, you know, I'd forgotten about that. I forgot about that till I had my little midlife liminal thing where I was doing a bunch of memoir writing and and just digging up my own past and trying to like deal with it and um thinking about my childhood and stuff like that. And uh what triggered it is you know, we're living down here in the south part of town and you know, we hear across across the highway <clears throat> like two, three hundred feet away. Can hear these screeching. Sounds like little baby birds, but it sounds like if that's a baby bird, then I hate to see what the grown-up looks like because that's that's a big set of pipes, 300 feet away. What the hell is over there? And so it would be at night, and you hear it, you know. And then a month later, we see a white owl and two little babies flying over our house, 
you know, in circles. And my wife's like, get the cats inside. I'm like, I don't know. I kind of think our cat could handle this. I'm kind of interested to say, I don't, <laughs> we had a cat that was like a little killer, but uh, anyway, and it like, you know, I've seen owls around here, but like apparently white ones are a little more rare. And uh, yeah, I was about to ask if white owls were comparatively rare. Well, they are, <clears throat> you know, it's funny because I had a neighbor who's from Mexico which you could see the border wall from the house there. And he's like, you see owl, man, you got to watch out. It's like a bad sign. It means you might, you know, somebody might be after you. And I'm, I, you know, years later, I'm like, is that because of the Tecos that you have this <laughs> superstition about if you see an owl, it's like a bad sign. Or did they, the Tecos take that and, and use it as like, that's why we're going to be the owls. Cause it's bad luck, you know? But, uh, Anyway, when that when I during that season of these owls circling over our heads, it brought back those memories of that totem and those those owl pellets. And I still have one of the skulls. I've kept it all these years. So anyway, there's a song about turning into an owl on that record, which is a boundary crossing. Right. That's a boundary violation. Human is a human, not an owl, but you turn into an owl. Um there's a song on liminal about the paranormal tourism industry. And, you know, there's like a, a ghost tour that, and it's like, I think they charge them 15 bucks a piece. And on a Friday night, you know, you just see like 30, 40 people lined up and it's just like, ka-ching for some lens flare, man. What is it about people want to catch a glimpse of a ghost or, you know, get kind of spooked about, uh, ghosts and it's always like a dead hooker or a, like a dead innocent child it's never like you know this this accountant tragically died in a fire in this old building it's always like robbed in his innocent youth this little boy or, or some frankie and johnny thing or some soiled dove lady of the night and a jealous lover you know it's always like got got some kind of story love and death you know so anyway that's a that's one of the songs that's on there there's just a lot of songs about boundaries and boundary violations. And, uh, and then the last song is the heretic song. And it's just, this is one of those things that, you know, Jason Horsley's work turned me on to. It's like, uh, Jehovah in the Bible, you know, every time he's acting, he's dividing, you know, the earth from space, the waters of the deep from the dry land, Eve from Adam came from Abel. Tower of Babel, you know, even Jesus saying something like, unless you hate your mother and father, you can't follow me or something along those lines. You know, you have to leave behind your family if you want to be my disciple. There's this theme of like dissociation and separation uh, that runs through the Bible. And it just really makes you think, you know, if you've read the right books, if you read the God of trauma, it's really, it's reads like a manifesto on Jehovah in a lot of places. It's a very highly recommended book, man. Understand the world and culture a lot better after uh, checking that book out. But anyway, so yeah, there's a song about Jehovah, the great dissociator on there. And, and like you said, it's just seven songs and they're all so different. You know, there's a lot of stuff a lot of different styles on offer there. There's like some flute, some fiddle, a little thumb piano. 
and of course hand percussion which i i really like so and it's got the sun on it so the cycle's complete done like almost 30 tracks with my man Stuart, and now it's next is going to be like some blues and rock and roll kind of stuff if i ever get to make another one well i mean it uh you've got till like what 20 uh 27 right i thought i had till march 4th but it kind of came and went and we're all still here so i don't think we're getting off that easy dude we're gonna be here (laughs) we're going to suffer and we're gonna try to make it uh, metabolize the suffering into something beautiful if we're lucky enough yeah well, and that's what i that's what i try to do with my music man turn the tragic into magic yeah well it's the best thing you can do especially in times like these all right uh time for some closing thoughts now on this album it kind of comes off as your uh your farewell to conspiratainment uh, do you want to tell us how you got hooked <laughs> and what it's like uh being in recovery it really comes off as a farewell to conspiratainment that's uh that's cool Okay. Definitely, I think in the second song, especially or in the first one too, the first two tracks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, the yeah, kind of the Twilight Zone. It, like right at the beginning. <laughs> right, the the Twilight Zone. Yeah, it's like what happens when uh, Morpheus says, "Take you want the red pill or the blue pill," and it's like, "Fuck you, Bill Cosby. I'm eating both of them." You know, yeah, red and blue. Let's eat them up. Turn purple in my in my belly. Um. No, I, I, I get what it, what you're saying, but like, yeah, I, uh, you know, when I was, uh, in college, you know, in my twenties and stuff, I, I worked at a library. I worked at the college library and, uh, they had this new thing called the internet. Or at least it was new to me, you know, like Netscape and AOL and, you know, so I was like helping people get online for the first time, you know, students that didn't you know had no experience with the internet and so i was on the internet a bunch and this is you know before youtube before facebook social media was still kind of like still like had one foot in usenet discussion groups and like fidonet and shit you know um they didn't even have like embedded video on like news websites you know, and they didn't even pay. They didn't even have the paywalls up. I mean, we still had newspapers back then. You know, anyway, I was on the internet when 9/11 happened. You know, during that time, and uh, yeah, I got radicalized, man. I was a little truther, you know, because you you got all these tabs open, you're checking all this stuff out, and you can see like, wait, wait, you know, thinking on 9/11. It was something like 58,000 people were supposed to be in those buildings. And then it was like, no, actually nobody was there. Or they, they got out and, and then you just see the cover up happening and it was just a weird time. And so I had all this information available to me, you know, like too much. And, uh, you know, got to be a no planer for a little while. Got, got introduced to Alex Jones and, rents.com which somebody turned me on to and the little occasional links on there about the alluring mystique of of adolf hitler you know for some reason just didn't didn't register to me like that's actually really bad that that's here so i'm here because i'm a little 9-11 truther guy 
and I'm on a website that's got a link to a thing about why is it that Adolf Hitler is so cool and so, you know, regarded as like a deity after all these years. Like if that's on the website anywhere that you're looking, you're on the wrong fucking website. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like today's YouTube algorithm where you're three or four videos away from being like, you know, pilled, whatever flavor. But this is in the early text only like GeoCities days of the internet, you know? And one thing that really got me through and helped me get out of all that um, was websites like Rigorous Intuition. I read that blog, every single entry on that blog. And they started a forum and I read that forum all the time. And uh, that forum has seen better days, you know, the way it is now, but you know, but once upon a time, there was quite a bit of uh, activity on there. And that's where is from that where I discovered like Dave Emery. And, um, and, you know, some people have problems with Dave Emery for whatever reason. I remember the, the lady that you interviewed about misogyny and sexist bullshit in the uh, paranormal industry. I can't remember her name right now. Quick. That was such a great interview. And such a, like a rare, like who's talking about stuff like this hats off to you recluse for having her on. That was, that was great. But her story about Dave Emery, I'm like, that sounds exactly like some shit Dave Emery would do. Like you are too attractive and so is your friend and you must therefore be honeypots <laughs> and you're way too into my work and I don't trust you. That's just, that's just funny. But uh, Dave Emery, you know, he's like he just like Nazis under every bed his whole life. That's what he's been talking about, you know. And uh, here in 2021, it's looking like his shit holds up pretty good to me. You know, there may be some flaws somewhere. I mean, the guy's been on the air for like since I was just out of diapers. So I imagine he screwed up on something at some point. But damn, he's been on that tip for a long time and. Like I said, holds up, holds up pretty good. It's like, yeah, I think he was onto something. But uh, anyway, um, looking at stuff like you know the New World Order tropes and and all that, and and man, <clears throat> again, they're just coming off of uh, the rigorous intuition thing, which I used to read all the time. There was this guy, maybe you heard of him, uh, Dreams End. I think maybe oh, his yes, name was, yes, 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 you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Actually, yes. Yeah. Stephanie Quick um, knew him a little bit. She was um, actually on the Rigorous Institute's uh, forum. Or I think she might still be. I'm not entirely sure. Sorry, Stephanie, if I'm <laughs> wrong about that. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And um, ironically, yeah, my actually my favorite fan, too, uh, was a big um, fan of Dreams End at one point. Uh, we'll just call her Mary. And Mary sure. actually covered my blog uh, from one of the readers of Dreams End who pointed her towards mine. So, yeah, yeah. he was going into the stuff <clears throat> that the Alex Jones of the world wouldn't. And uh, <clears throat> the favorite thing that he ever said that I really liked was uh, observe more, interpret less. Mm, so simple so profound that's just like that should be on every uh researcher or youtube pundit you know just like 
just remember this. Let this be your North Star. Observe more, interpret less. Unless you have a deadline, you have to have a new video up by next week, in which case I guess you better just keep talking, you know. Um, yeah, so from Dream's End and some of the stuff they were writing, I found this website. It's still up, I believe. It's a GeoCities website called the uh, the Integral Tradition. And, and, and I think it was... Uh, tradition and cultural or not cultural um, conservative revolution i think the subtitle and you can find that website or you can find it on the way back machine and it's talking about like the new world order and capitalism and communism being bad and the atlantic you know world order and all this kind of stuff and you can find writings by renee ganon Alexander Dugan, back when nobody was talking about that guy, way back. Like a lot of people know who he is now, but way back in like, you know, 2005, 2006, I was reading this guy's writings and reading about him. But they had like Julia Civola and Satri Tevi or whatever her name is, Devi, the one that said Hitler was like the avatar of Vishnu. <clears throat> so there are all these – this writing – and it's like this hyper traditionalist Julius Savola kind of stuff. And they're talking about being against the New World Order. And so you're drawn in, like, yeah, yeah, you know. And then after a little while, it's like, and that's why Hitler was right, you know, like, whoa, what the fuck? Um, and uh that started to like change me, you know, and I started uh started to see a little bit of the psyop, you know, behind some of this stuff. And my 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 kind of my shtick now is like, you know, the same old bubble popping line crossing. Where's the fence so I can cut through it kind of attitude that I always had. But now it's like pointing out, you know, this is bullshit. This is a psyop. UFO culture is best understood as a hundred year long psychological operation in which your brain <laughs> is the field of battle and the objective. Um, same thing with all the new age stuff. Same thing with the new world order, this, this ephemeral, you know, bullshit thing, you know, and nobody likes me, you know, <laughs> nobody likes you, you know, like I want my UFO culture. Come on. Like, no, no, it's trash, dude. You know, I want to be against the globalists, you know, um, when I was coming up in 1999, there were massive protests against this new apparently thing called globalization. And you may be old enough to remember it, maybe not. It was the Battle of Seattle, they called it. Oh, yeah. And a bunch of leftists and anarchists and the occasional vandal that was looking to throw a brick through a Starbucks or a McDonald's, maybe, maybe COINTELPRO, maybe Sincere, I don't know. But this was the left protesting against globalization and nafta and gat and the world trade organization and all the stuff that now like belongs to alex jones and whatever globalism and the globalists are are just basically like whatever he says they are they're the democrats at this point they're baby eating satanists you know the end but um once upon a time you know, some of these issues did belong to the left and they got poached and like outclassed and outmaneuvered by 
kind of this Strasserite, crypto fascist, Glenn Greenwald fucking, you know, shtick where it's like, yeah, we are also against all of the regime change imperialist wars, you know. And then you click through to the next video, next video, next video. And that's why Hitler was right. You know, <laughs> it's it's uh, that Chip Berlay article, right? Woo's left from way back in the day. And it's like it never goes the other way. You know, the left, if it even exists at this point, is never successfully going to be poaching neo-fascists over to its side. But in the twilight zone of the far right that horseshoe bends far enough to where they can pull people that, you know, are sincerely like me. I was always a single issue voter, you know, stop killing people, spend that money here. Our country's falling apart and people's teeth are falling out of their heads and people can't go to doctors and can't you spend that money here? Or maybe how about just one less F 35 on the order sheet this year? And put that whatever 300 Brazilian dollars into the people of the United States, you know, um, that that's always been my shtick, you know, like so. The Democratic Party being like a center right party, which they are ever since the Clinton days, um, they're to the right of Dwight Eisenhower, you know, on everything that really matters to me anyway. Um, you know, so it's like, so where does that anti-war left go? And then you've got your like Tulsi Gabbards and whatever that are ready to like scoop them up and go, I too am against the regime change wars, you know? And, and so you follow them and it's like this, you know, it goes into this little crypto fashy thing and it only seems to go that one direction. And, uh, I've tried to point this out to people and, you know, in my life and, you know, online when I used to, he's called me an internet personality. I, I hope I'm not an internet personality, Jesus. Uh, but yeah, like nobody likes you when you, when you, when you're popping bubbles like that, you know, but that's the recovery. But the other part of it is, you know, like I, I, I got to do that, that history thesis on world anti-communist league. And, you know, you, uh, you have to do something called literature review read everything that's ever been said about this that way you can do a kick-ass book report or whatever but then if you read everything that's ever been written about a subject and then you go to an archive like the hoover institution and you start looking through papers this is when i first started reaching out to you i was at the hoover institution when i emailed you saying dude stefan Pasoni was speaking at a velovovsky conference do you want to see those documents? And you answer me back like, yeah, I do. And I didn't get to get them. But, you know, when you know all this stuff that you've read all these books and then you see these papers, you're like, oh, my God, this is not in any book. You know, this is like new stuff. Um, or it could be new if somebody goes into those archives and gets that stuff and digests it and then makes a narrative out of it. It's like doing that. Uh archival research was so like satisfying to me, you know, like, like this doesn't exist. You know, I'm picking one of Stefan Pisoni's hairs off of one of his papers, you know, those papers don't exist. And then when like the Andersons go write a book, like inside the league, you know, it's 300 pages. It's a pretty good, good sized book, but there's a bunch of stuff that's going to not make it into the book and get left out. <laughs> 
It's just the way it is. So learning how to read in a new way like that, learning how to think in new ways like that, learning how to like analyze and find the gaps in, in, in the existing historical record of whatever subject. And then how do you fill those gaps? Well, here's how you do it. You know, you go, you go find the stuff that hasn't been exposed to oxygen and then you do it. And it's just been like, it's been so great to like sort of graduate from, you know, um, internet browsing garden variety, like conspiratard to like actual historian, even if it's just kind of like amateur, you know, like I'm not a professor or whatever. It's just, and I didn't, I didn't have a whole lot of guidance. I'm no disrespect to my advisors or anything, but it was like, I kind of went deep and went over their heads with this stuff. Like, no, I'm like really going to do some real shit. I'm going to write a grant from you guys and you're going to pay for me to go to the Hoover institution. And, you know, I don't think they were used to their students bringing it like that, but I'm like, how many times am I going to go to grad school? You know, like make the most of it. And, uh, it changed me, changed my, changed my life. Made, made me, you know, feel like, uh, there's a way to, to commit the great American sin, which is to actually just remember the past. You know, it's like, I'm a sinner. I'm a bubble popper. Uncle Sam wants us to forget and I'm going to remember because I'm a sinner. <laughs> it's been quite a journey and it's not over. And as you know, we're, we're still getting stuff on a fairly regular basis. And we've kind of made our team get a little bit bigger and share the load. And it's so much better to be, to be on that side of it than, than to just be another pixel out there yammering on about the freaking new world order or whatever. It's like boring to me at this point. So I'm never bored anymore. I'll tell you that. Yeah. We'll just uh, wait till we get going on the, uh, the UFO series. Um, it's definitely going to be good. And um, yeah, I mean, Erica Luke's and uh, I'm probably going to bring in uh, Terrence Bishop on this too. Uh, you haven't met uh, Terry yet, but uh, he's got a lot of really good stuff too. Um, uh, that one's going to be, uh, it's definitely going to be, I think on par with the Wackle series in terms of new material we're going to be bringing out. Yeah. And, and, and that's the, the last thing, you know, I'll say about like this whole subject as, as far as like being a conspirator in recovery or whatever, getting to like collaborate with you and, and be on these podcasts and like, you know, on that Wackle series, I mean, you know, we're getting way off the subject here, so I'll just make it quick. But like me and Don Diligent, especially, we did so much homework for those things, for those for those podcasts, you know, just to try to get it right. And to try to. Again, we've heard everything. We've read everything. We know what the average consumer of this kind of content out there. If we assume that they've seen all the stuff we've seen that's out there, how can we bring them something that isn't out there, you know? So a lot of that material came out of archives and, and private papers of, of some of these people. It's like, there was a bunch of shit on there. that was not in any book that I don't know if people realize it. I don't know how many people got all the way through all those episodes, but, and it's just, as I said, once on one of those podcasts, the whole thing's your fault, man. I'm like, I'm really glad I met you and, and, uh, and that we've gotten to work together and that I've gotten to be part of your team and, it's just cool as hell. Now we're talking about my my new record on here. I don't. I've never given an interview about any of my 
weirdo beardo music before. So it's just a cool, cool part of my life, man. It's nice knowing you, buddy. I'll tell you that. Uh, same here, mate. Well, um, let's see. I guess uh, do you got any uh, close, any more closing thoughts for us? Do you want to plug your uh, Bandcamp page one more time? Yeah, it's uh, KeithAllenDennis.bandcamp.com. And uh, yeah, go give it a listen. Put it in the show notes if you can, Recluse. Oh, yeah, yeah. Be up there. Absolutely. And for you know any of the listeners that are out there that that listen to this podcast or the music, and if anybody actually made it through the entire Wackle series, uh, I would love it if just somebody just said something in the comments. Just just one person to be like, yes, I listened to all twenty whatever hours of it. <laughs> I feel like we're the only possibly ones that. That actually did, but anyway, yeah. So no, no, thanks, no, and, uh, no, no. Annie Wilkin, uh, Wilkes has definitely listened to all of these shows that are out thus far. I know at least one listener. Um, finally got to announce Annie on the air too. Um, for you pop culture buffs, that'll be really interesting if you guys look up that name. It uh, is a pseudonym. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> right. All right. Um, but yes, there is at least one person who has listened to the entire series. I believe there are a couple <laughs> other ones, though. So uh, you at least got that, mate. Right on. Thanks for having me on your show to talk about some some cool, weird, mystic blues stuff and dreams and synchronicities and all the rest of it. It's pretty interesting discussion. I'm really sticking my neck out there on some of this stuff. So we'll we'll see what the fallout is later. All right, man. But it's the end of the world, so you may as well tell the truth and try to make something beautiful if you can. And if you can't uh, make it beautiful, you can at least make it truthful. And truth is beauty at the end of the day, so it's really the same thing. That's why it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's right. All right, man. Well, on that note, I suppose I shall sign off uh, for both of us. Uh, As always, uh, to all of you out there, thank you for listening, and good night and good luck.